welcome you to Valley Life this morning. My name is Adam Young. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're excited to have you um, join with us in worship this morning. So uh, as we get started this morning, um, I'm going to ask you a question that I just want you to, to take a moment to think about. Um, you don't have to answer out loud or to anyone around you. Um, but if I were to say the word gospel, what comes to your mind? Think about it for a minute. If I were to say the word gospel, what, what comes to your mind? If, if you grew up in a religious setting, if you grew up in religious circles, there might be loads of information running through your head when you hear that word. If uh, you were hurt by Christians or hurt by a church, then maybe when you hear that word, uh, there's a sense of pain, uh, bad experiences or baggage that come along with that word. Um, maybe for you sitting here this morning, that's a word that you're really not that familiar with and there's more questions than answers when you hear the word gospel. Now, the word that we use, um, the, the gospel, um, comes from an old Greek word, uh, euangelion. And the reason it would even come from a Greek word is because the New Testament, the part of the, your Bible that was written in response to the life of Jesus, was written in ancient Greek. And they had this word, euangelion, which literally we translate as gospel, but means good news. Now, originally, it didn't have any religious connotations attached to it. It, it was just a proclamation of good news. So if you were to live in the first century and a messenger were to come to your town or your village and proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news, they might be doing so to announce that the king is coming to visit. It would be good news that a messenger would come and proclaim to a town. Or maybe if your soldiers were fighting a war or a battle, a messenger might come to your town and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news that your soldiers were victorious in battle and had won, and they were coming to proclaim this good news. It was Jesus and his followers who started attaching this word, the gospel, the good news, to what Jesus had come to accomplish. They started attaching it to his life and his ministry. And so we would call it good news. We would call it the gospel because of the good news that in his birth, God came to visit us, to visit sinners who needed a Savior. It's good news because he came to live a life that we could never live in perfect harmony with his Father in heaven. A harmony that you and I on our own don't have or get to experience. It's good news because he came to die on our behalf, to die on the cross for us. It's good news that he was buried and resurrected because in his resurrection he defeated sin and death and through his life we now can find true life. It's good news. This is the gospel. Now if I were to ask you, where would we go in the Bible to find this good news, to find the gospel? Now, the right answer would be all of the Bible, because all of the Bible is littered with references 
foreshadows or reflections upon the good news of Jesus and his life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection. Most often, we would, if we wanted to look at this good news of Jesus, go to the Gospels, the four Gospels, appropriately named because they spend their time reflecting on the birth and the life and the teachings and the miracles and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But I want to look at the Gospel in a different place this morning. And so we're going to go all the way to the beginning, the beginning of your Bible and the beginning of the story our story. And so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. And you can follow along in the Bible app. You can follow along in your Bible if you brought one. There should be one under your seat or the one in front of you if you'd rather have a hard copy with you. And most of these scriptures are going to be on the screen for us this morning as well. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to look at a couple passages from the beginning of the story in Genesis. And we're going to look at how it reveals to us the story of the gospel. And we're going to talk about its implications for us this morning. And so we'll begin at the most simple beginning there is. Genesis 1.1. It's the first verse in all of our Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now here's what I'm going to do for us. is As we start to take this journey together... I'm going to make a couple observations, and I'm going to put those observations on the screen for us. Now, I don't normally do that, but I think being very uh, specific will help us um, bring clarity and will also help me move faster. You can say amen at that point. Okay, so Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the first observation that I just want to make for us is that as creator God determines the purpose of all creation as the one who initiates and executes the creation he's the one who gets to determine all of creation's purpose so we're going to skip along in the story as God begins to create all that we know and the realities that we see and don't see We come to the culmination of creation. Genesis 1, 26-27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here's our second observation that men and women were created with intention and for a purpose. In the story of creation, humanity stands as the supreme focus and crescendo of God's creative acts. We were created in God's image. Human beings were the only part of creation uh, that were given a mandate of what we were supposed to do. That we were created for fellowship an intimate relationship with our Creator. And so we were created with intention and for a purpose. 
Now let's keep going in the story. We're going we're gonna to jump to Genesis chapter 3, and I promise I'm going to tie all these pieces together and talk about why we're here this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, is when things go south. When God's purpose for creation uh, gets misaligned. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, we're introduced into how sin enters into the picture of creation and humanity. Verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if you're unfamiliar, uh, the context of this passage is uh, Satan has come to tempt Adam and Eve to do the one thing God told them not to do. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Our observation here is that sin and rebellion fracture God's design for men and women. Now, Greg touched on this point last week in his message. That what seems odd is that at the moment of rebellion, the first thing that Adam and Eve recognized was that they were naked. They recognized their vulnerability. They recognized that what they once had had been lost. In this moment, what Adam and Eve thought they wanted was independence from God. They didn't want to have to rely on Him. They wanted to know good and evil for themselves. And unfortunately for them, they got exactly what they wanted. Independence from God. And it came at the cost of separation from God. Now there's a host of consequences that take place in this story in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to go through all of them. I just want to highlight one. And this will be the last point of observation that we make and we'll tie it together. As God is speaking to all those involved in this moment, Satan, Adam, and Eve, about the consequences of what they've just done, I want to look at something that God says to Satan here. Speaking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you are looking in the NIV, I actually like the way it says it there. It says that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Uh, biblical scholars and theologians uh, label this verse the proto-euangelion, which just means the first gospel. They say it that way because they need to feel smart and say fancy words, but it means the first gospel. It means this is the first moment when God declares that despite the fracture that sin has caused, that God has a plan. That even though because of sin, we have now been separated from our Creator. That we got the independence we wanted, but it turns out 
It's not what we were designed for. But immediately, God doesn't leave his creation without hope. God has a plan. In the rest of the Old Testament, we see that plan slowly start to unfold. As God begins taking steps toward creation, towards humanity, to reconcile the relationship that was fractured. And then as we turn the pages into the New Testament, God puts a face and a name to his rescue plan. And we learn that in Jesus, Satan will strike his heel. But in the end, Jesus crushes his head. That Satan thought he could stop Jesus with death. But it turns out that even the grave couldn't hold him down. And so even from the first pages of the Bible, we see, we see the story of the gospel start to unfold. Now in Genesis, we don't have all the answers. We haven't yet learned the name of Jesus and when and how he was going to come and what he was going to do. But even from the beginning, when things went south, we saw that God had a plan. Now here's what I want to do this morning, and I'll explain a little bit about why I took us to Genesis. There's one one of the observations that we made of the four as we walked through sort of the beginning, the foundations of the gospel in Genesis that I want us to focus on. And what I want to do is I want it to inform us when it comes to some cultural issues that we are facing today. And I want to go back to the second observation that we made as we were starting to lay out the foundations of the truth of the gospel. Those foundations being that as creator, God is the one who gets to determine the purpose for all of creation. That men and women were created with intention and purpose, but that sin fractured God's design for us, yet God had a plan. Those were the sort of four pieces that we laid out in this second piece that men and women were created with intention and purpose it's a core tenet of the gospel that we were created for eternal fellowship and communion with our creator and i want to for a moment look at the implications this has on some of our societal and cultural conversations And as we walk through some of these, it'll make sense why we're talking about it today. And the first one is this. Last weekend was Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. Our culture talks a lot about race and inequality and oppression and historic and systemic discrimination. Our culture loves to point out the injustices that take place in our country and loves to place lots of blame. But what our society does not have is answers. Because if they did, we'd be working on them rather than arguing about them. Genesis 1.27. So we looked at this in its bigger context a moment ago. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If humans are created in the image of God, then all people are equally valuable and worthy of honor and respect and dignity. And the gospel demands 
that we see others as God sees them. The gospel transforms not only how we now understand Jesus, it transforms not only how we now see ourselves, but it also transforms how we see other people. Let me show you how this is fleshed out in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 2. This is what Paul will say to one of his churches. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the first controversies, the first problems, the first arguments the church ever had in the first century was one over ethnic divides. It wasn't over theology. It wasn't about the divinity of Jesus or the resurrection. It was about how do two groups of people who come from very different places and who historically have never mingled or gotten along, how does the gospel impact those ethnic divides? That was the first controversy the church had to work through in the first century. And here's what Paul has to say about part of it. He says in verse 10, For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's an ancient word for anyone who wasn't Jewish. Remember once time you non-Jewish folk in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Uh, is a, a way that Paul is describing the difference between Jews and non-Jews based on their religious and cultural practices. He says, verse, 10, verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It is in Christ that we are made one. And all the walls of hostility that used to divide us and that continue to divide people throughout our country and world, it is in Christ that those walls come crumbling down. Because in Christ we're united to Him and to one another. It's in Christ that the ideal of creation that we bear the image of God is made whole. So if the gospel is true, then it changes how we not only see Jesus and ourselves, but how we see other people. That the gospel demands that we see all people of all races and all colors as equal and worthy of honor and respect and dignity. There are some other cultural discussions we're having. I don't know if you know it or not, but today is something uh, that our culture has labeled Sanctity of Life Sunday. Now, we don't hear about it very often. It actually started with Ronald Reagan back in 1984, uh, but it's not something that our culture likes to talk about. The only reason you would really ever know it if 
unless you follow Christian blogs or something, would be because this is the time of year when something called the March for Life takes place in Washington, D.C. and many other major cities. To celebrate the value of all human life, not only regardless of color, but also regardless of stage of development. If we are created with intentionality and a purpose, then all human beings are equally valuable. No matter their color, no matter where they come from, and no matter their stage of development. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13, says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The prophet Jeremiah reflects on his own life and calling. Jeremiah 1 starting in verse 4, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, this is what God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. If the gospel is true, then it changes not only how we see Jesus, not only how we see ourselves, but how we see all other humans and human life. There are more cultural conversations that we're having that the gospel speaks to. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Gender is a part of God's design. It's not determined by a doctor or what someone chooses to write on a form in the hospital. It's a part of God's intentional, creative design. And it also means that men and women equally share in the image of God that they bear. There's another one, another conversation that we're having as a culture that the gospel speaks into. I want to return for a moment back to Ephesians chapter 2. We read verses 10 through 14 earlier. We're going to focus in just a little bit on verses 12 through 14. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If the gospel is true, then it not only changes how we see and understand Jesus, it not only changes how we see and understand ourselves, it changes how we see and understand all other human beings, regardless of of what they look like, regardless of what stage of development they may be in, 
and regardless of what gender they are, and also regardless of what their citizen's status may be. Our culture is currently in a debate and argument about what to do about immigration in our country. And if you start to look at God's heart for humanity, throughout the Bible, you see God's heart for the foreigner. In Genesis chapter 12, when God declares to Abraham that he is going to make a new people through him, that he is going to bless him to bless every nation on earth. That wasn't a geopolitical statement. That was a people group statement. That he was going to bless Abraham and his descendants so that they could bless every people group on the face of this earth. In Exodus chapter 22, God demands that the Israelites treat the foreigners well because he reminds them that they were once the foreigners in Egypt when they were slaves in Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God demands that the Israelites love and feed and care for the sojourner or the foreigner or the immigrant. In Ezekiel chapter 22 and Jeremiah chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 7, punishment and judgment are, are warned for those in Israel who mistreat and extort the foreigner by not providing them with justice. If the gospel is true, it changes not just how we see and understand Jesus, not just how we see and understand ourselves, which those are certainly true. It changes how we see and understand other people. The gospel speaks into the conversations that we're having as a culture and society. The gospel informs how we respond in many ways. Now, specifically when it comes to immigration, let me be clear. My aim is not to oversimplify the plight of immigrants in our country or, to, um, or the predicament that it is to figure out how to provide for them. It's not my aim here to propose comprehensive political answers for some very practical legislative uh, quagmires that we're in as a country. It is my aim, however, to show that the gospel message has implications for the issue of immigration and issues surrounding other people created in God's image who are different than us, who we might be tempted to see as a threat or as an obstacle. We are talking about our neighbors, literally as individuals and as a country, but also figuratively as Jesus defined for us who our neighbors are. The gospel speaks into these conversations we're having as a culture and society to inform us about how we should see and treat others. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. If you're looking at the NIV, it would say as sons and daughters. But when the fullness of time had come, 
here Paul is reflecting back on that fourth part of our observation of the gospel that God had a plan. And that plan was Jesus. And when the timing was right, God sent his son. God sent Jesus to be born into the world that we inhabit. One that is fractured and broken. It's full of broken relationships. To bring life and truth and hope to all those who are looking for answers. And we find those answers in the gospel. In that good news. In the good news of Jesus. In the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He came to live among us. That He lived a life that we couldn't live. That He died a death we deserved to die. And He defeated the grave so that He might offer us new life. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to take a moment to think about and reflect on the truth of your love. That even in our sin and even when we rebel, you had a plan. That you never gave up on us. That you had always planned to send your son for us. And that the, the enemy would strike his heel. Jesus, you would crush his head. That you would defeat sin. You would defeat death. So that in you, we may have life. I want you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. We read from Ephesians 2 a couple times. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, we read these words, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of us are guilty. All of us stand before God condemned because of our rebellion and our sin, separated from Him. But it's in Christ Jesus that those who are far off are brought near. Brought back into that fellowship with our Creator that we lost in sin. That we are no longer defined by the mistakes that we've made. When it comes to issues of how we see and treat other people, other people of different races or nationalities, other people of different stages of development and abilities, other people with different citizenship status than us. When we've failed to live up to God's calling and ideal for us, He draws us near. He draws us back into love and fellowship with Him. And it's through the blood of Jesus. It's through His death on the cross that 
we can be made whole and united, united to our Creator and united to one another. As we close, we're going to worship and sing together. And at the back of the room is the communion table with bread and the cup. And as we worship, we're going to celebrate the blood of Christ and the power that it has to reconcile us back to our Creator. And so as we're singing, when you're ready, we invite you to the table to take of the bread and the cup to remember Jesus' sacrificial death for us that brought love and reconciliation, wholeness and unity back to all of us who had lost it. Let me pray. Lord, we just thank you again for your goodness and for all the ways that we've fallen short, Lord. We thank you that you've drawn us back into your presence, that you've brought unity once again. Lord, as our culture continues to have these conversations, may we be those who bring life into it to promote the well-being of all those who are different than us, to be those who bear your image and bring love and honor and dignity and respect to all others who bear your image. And we celebrate and thank you for the gospel that through your blood we're reconciled back to you. Lord, be honored by the way we respond and worship to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.